you have a Bible this morning, find the book of Mark, and we're going to be in chapter number one. Mark chapter one. Uh, this morning is the second week of a uh, series of messages that we've just been in a study on the book of Mark, on the gospel of Mark. Uh, if you were here last week, what we noticed was that Mark seems to just leave out a whole lot of details in his account compared to some of the others. Mark is one of the four Gospels in the Bible. What that simply means is that it's one of the four books of the Bible that tells the story of Jesus uh, and, and Jesus and what he did and what he taught and all that type of stuff. And eventually he's going to die and it's going to tell us that story in that. Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels. It's only 16 chapters. It's a fast read. It's absolutely fantastic. It's also the oldest of the four Gospels. It was the first one that was written. And the other three actually plagiarized the junk out of Mark. And you'll read. And they used some of his Gospel to write some of their stuff and so I don't mean that in a, bad, in a bad way. But this Christian scribe named John Mark uh, spent a lot of time with Simon Peter. Now, Peter was one of the main disciples of Jesus, spent all sorts of time with him. And then later on in life, him and Mark did a lot of ministry and work together in different ways. And Mark after hearing everything that Peter was saying, all the stories Peter was telling, Mark began to write out the story of Jesus from Peter's perspective. Uh, so in a way, it's Peter's story. Peter was there when Jesus did all these miracles. Peter was there when, when uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter saw Jesus feed 5,000 people like he was passing the stuff out. And so we have this firsthand account of Peter written out by this man uh, named, named Mark. And last week we looked at Mark's introduction where he just makes the purpose of his writing super clear. He just says, he says, I want you to know that Jesus is the Son of God and that he's the Messiah. And then he's, he's like, I'm writing all this to explain that and talk about that. And so last week we read about how Jesus was baptized. It was right away in the book of Mark. The gospel of Mark doesn't talk about the birth of Jesus. It just goes right into Jesus is baptized. He's 30 years old and heaven opens up and God says, this is my son whom I am well pleased. And so Mark is setting the stage saying, this is the very son of God. Uh, Jesus is then sent out into the wilderness. We looked at that. And for 40 days, Jesus fasted. He did not eat anything. And Satan came out there and tempted him. And we have that story. And we looked at that. Uh, and then Mark tells us that Jesus began proclaiming the good news, saying the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Uh, repent and believe uh, in me. And, and so Jesus begins to make that. And so today we pick up in that spot. So please stand with me all over this place. And let's read Mark chapter 1, starting in verse number 16. Anybody excited to be here? Or are you doing okay? Like, shake out a little bit. I don't know. Like, come on. Three people over here were just excited. So that's pretty good. But here we go. I, I am, I'm fired up about what we're going to look at today. I think it's going to be fantastic. And so here we go. Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 16. It says, As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had got a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Let's pray. God, we 
we just take a deep breath and we invite you into this moment right here. We pray that your very word would, would speak, that it would encourage, that it would show us things and teach us things. And uh, God, I pray that you would use me. Don't let any of this really be about me on a stage in front of people. Let, let this be for your glory and, and for you. And so, God, uh, we give this moment to you. We, we, we know that this is a holy moment anytime we open up your very word. And so we uh, do this humbly today, asking for you to help us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Give somebody a high five and have a seat. Let's go. <clears throat> All right, well, within the story, within the story of Jesus, we have a, a number of what I will call sub-stories, uh, kind of side stories. We have the story of Jesus, really, and how he interacts with the crowds, uh, and that's a piece of the puzzle that Mark is going to tell. Jesus also, we have the story of Jesus interacting with the religious people, the religious leaders, and they're eventually going to be the ones that want him killed. Uh, and so we have that side story, and we're going to look at some of these as the, over the next few weeks. Today... We're going to focus on a, a third side story, and that is what I'm going to call Jesus and the Twelve. Uh, Jesus had a small group that uh, he invited to really be in his personal circle and follow him and go with him and teach and, and all of this type of stuff. And, uh, and he, he walked with them, ate with them, spent all their time together in that way. And, the six, and 16 verses into the story of Mark, the story that Mark tells here, we have the story of Jesus calling his first four disciples. And so there's 12 of them eventually. One of them is Judas, who is going to betray him. We, we have the story of only how five of them were called, the four we have now. And then we also have this tax collector named Levi or Matthew. Uh, but right here, uh, we have Jesus calling these first disciples, and here's how the story goes. There's two brothers, Simon and Andrew. Simon, if you did not know, that is Peter. And so we call him Simon Peter, and so this is the Peter that Mark like hung out with and wrote. And so this is Peter's introduction to Jesus and into the story. And so two brothers, Simon and Andrew, they're fishing and it's what they did for a living. They're in a small rural village in northern Israel, uh, right on the Sea of Galilee. This is 70, 80 miles north of Jerusalem, uh, a few days walk in that way. So way up in north. And in, understand that that area in northern Israel is where Jesus grew up. It's where he spent most of his life, most of his time, was way up in the rural parts, traveling from little village to little village around the Sea of Galilee. These brothers here are thought to be in their late teens at this point, possibly some of them in their early 20s. But so you're talking about uh, young men uh, in that it's, these are not 30-year-old guys. These are 16, 17, 18-year-old kids who are fishing with, with like, uh, they are living under Roman rule here where things are complicated politically. And as a small town, Young kid, you pretty much just kept your head down, you kept quiet, you worked hard, and you paid your taxes to Rome. This is the situation that they are living in. And so Simon, Peter, is waist deep in the water, and he's casting his nets along the shore, which is how they would have fished in that way. 
uh, they would have thrown these huge nets and then they grab certain and they pull it and they kind of would capture fish in that thing. It's how they would fish in that way. His brother Andrew is in this small boat within talking distance of they're to- within talking distance of each other and a man walks towards them. There's no small talk that we have in any way, but this man simply says, "Come follow me." and I will send you out to fish for people. And those words right there in that conversation result in these two men immediately, it says at once, dropping all their stuff, leaving everything, and going to follow Jesus. At once they left their nets to follow him. And then the story repeats itself a second time with these two young men named James and John. They were also fishing. Their dad is there, a guy named Zebedee, which I think is the coolest name ever, by the way. And so if you're pregnant right now, write that one down, because that's a good, it'll help you, okay? Uh, but the same thing, and Jesus walks up to them and says, come follow me. And, and uh, they drop everything they have, they leave their father, they leave every, and they go and they follow this man. Uh, it, it's an interesting story, and, and often we read stuff like this, and many of us have grown up in church and we've heard these stories, and we've never really paused to think about how strange this is. I mean, think about this from like, from just a, a perspective of a guy walks up and says this and they leave. At once, they leave everything. They leave their family. They leave their job. They leave it all to go follow Jesus. And the question is, why? And, and Christian movies haven't really helped us over the years because they kind of just show, you know, Jesus walking down the hill and he's like glowing and he's Swedish for some reason, okay? And his hair, and, and so he's walking down and, and it's almost like he's floating and, and they look up at him and they're in a trance or something and they kind of walk off with him. That's, that's, not, that's not what we have here. But as Christians, we just sort of mentally think, well, yep, that's Jesus for you. You know, and, and we kind of just throw it in that way. But culturally, there's actually a much better understanding, a better explanation of why this looks like this and why this happens in this way. And so Jesus, in that moment, when he's interacting with these four young men, is using the language of a Jewish rabbi. Let me flesh this out a little bit. And so understand, if you were Simon, who will become Peter, and you were to visit your local synagogue, which is their Jewish little churches in these rural places, and Jesus was there speaking the category that you would put Jesus in is one of a rabbi. And the title rabbi just simply is literally translated master or teacher. Uh, And and rabbis were really the spiritual leaders of Israel. And they were respected. They were experts on teaching of the Torah, uh, which was the scriptures of their day. Uh, But they were also just looked at as like this beautiful example of what it what life with God looks like. And, and every rabbi in that day had what they, they would call a yoke, Y-O-K-E, kind of like a, an egg, uh, which was very simply, though, the way, the, a rabbi's understanding of the best way to live when it comes to following God. Their, their teaching of the scripture and Uh, and how to live this beautiful life that God has for, or we could say how to thrive as a human being uh, in God's good world. And so every rabbi had that. Well, how does somebody become a rabbi? 
Rabbis aren't just born into this. It's not handed off in that way. They come from a variety of places. And you can read about this historically. In fact, most Jewish rabbis came from the lines of farmers and blacksmiths and carpenters and regular people who were doing just regular things. Most rabbis were unpaid. They they didn't get paid for this. And they would walk from town to town to teach in whatever synagogue would have them. So picture this in this culture, what's happening. And they're really just relying on the hospitality of the people to feed them, to give them a place to stay and all of that. And often, listen to this, you're going to start hearing some of the similarities. They often spoke in riddles and spoke in parables in the way that they taught. And normally, a rabbi would travel with a small band of disciples following them everywhere that they went, teaching them, but not like in a classroom. This was open air along the road. They would sit down and they would teach their little group of disciples. Any of this starting to sound a little familiar uh, of what we're going to see Jesus do. See, understand this. Jesus didn't invent discipleship. He wasn't the first one to call people and call disciples and be followed around in that way. Rabbis with a small little group of disciples would have been regularly seen walking around this region of Galilee again and again. And we see this come up in other places in the New Testament. we, We read a little bit and we'll see that John the Baptist actually had disciples. And there's there's a spot where uh, John's, John's disciples say to, to John the Baptist, you know, uh, what should we do here? And John's like, you should go follow him, not me. But, but John the Baptist had disciples. The apostle Paul was a disciple of a nationally known, ra- nationally known rabbi named uh, Gamaliel. Uh, and all throughout the four gospels, understand that Jesus is, co- is constantly being addressed as teacher, Uh, As rabbi, in fact, Mary Magdalene, when she's like, she sees Jesus when he raises from the tomb, you know what she calls him? She doesn't say Jesus. She says, she says, Rabboni is, is the word she used in Hebrew. It's rabbi. She says, rabbi. And so Jesus... Uh, in this culture, constantly referred to as a rabbi. Now, let's take this a step further, and quickly, let me unpack for you the Jewish educational system historically. Turn to your neighbor and say, this sounds super fun. (laughs) Yeah, I know, okay? Uh, And if you want to read more about some of this stuff, there's a fantastic study called In the Dust of the Rabbi uh, by this Holy Lands teacher named Ray Vanderlaan, okay? He walks around Israel, and he teaches people these people, all this stuff, it's fantastic. It's also laid out in other books, Practicing the Way by John Mark Comer lays this out, but I think he stole most of his stuff from Ray Vanderlaan, uh, honestly. But so here we go. The Jewish educational system, and this is going to help us understand Peter and James and John and Andrew. Uh, Jewish kids started school at around five years old, uh, very similar to here, at the local uh, little place. It was called Bet Safar, which means the house of the book. Now this typically was built into the side of their Jewish little synagogue. So it was a part of, like a part of the little church, the Jewish church that they had. Uh, And the schooling was run by a full-time scribe or a Bible teacher. Their curriculum at this age was what's called the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible that we currently have. It's called the Jewish Law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, This was an oral culture, which that means is they didn't really have access to books like we have, and so it was passed on orally. 
Uh, and, and so things were memorized, and this blows my mind every time I read it, but that by the time these kids are 12 or 13 years old, the majority of them would have had the entire Torah memorized. That's f- the first five books of our Bible me- completely memorized in their mind. Okay, that's, it, I looked it up in my Bible. It's 242 pages in my paper Bible, and that's a super small font. 242 pages of my Bible, and these five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old kids would memorize the entire thing. Uh, and some of us are thinking, my 12-year-old can barely tie their shoes. Okay, yeah, I am with you. But at this point, understand that at this point, when they're, when they're in the 12-ish, 13 years old, the vast majority of the students in that, those little schools uh, uh, would, would drop out of school and would begin to learn their family business which is farming or fishing or carpentry, making pottery or whatever. Uh, But understand, the best of the best of their students would move on. Not very many, but the best of the best would move on, and the brightest, and they would go to a second level of education, which the, the Hebrew word is bet midrash, which just means the house of learning, and they would continue their studies. And understand this, by the age of 17, the students, almost all of the students in this second tier, would have the entire Old Testament memorized, word for word. That's the first 37 books of your Bible out of the 66. And it's like three quarters of your paper Bible, they would have that memorized. In my paper Bible, it was 1,025 pages of super small font memorized. Turn to your neighbor and say, I feel stupid. Memorized. It's unbelievable how they would have that memorized. Now, at this point, at 17-ish, the overwhelming majority of them would be done uh, with school, and they would be told, go make babies and pray that your babies become rabbis uh, and work your family trade. But the best of the best of the best and the brightest and the brightest kids in from that point would, would apply to be a disciple of one of the local rabbis. And understand, this is really hard to get into. It's kind of like going to an Ivy League school. Uh, you had to find a local rabbi who's, who you were drawn to, whose yoke maybe you agreed with, and, like, and, and then you would have to beg him to join his little band. All right, And then the rabbi would just begin to drill you and would say things like, uh, how well do you know the Torah? And he would, he would ask them questions about controversial Jewish things. And, uh, and, and he'd say, how often do you pray? And he would, he would drill them with all this type of stuff. And if after all of that, now listen, don't miss this part right here. If after all of that, this rabbi thought that you had the smarts, thought that you had the work ethic and all the intangibles, then this rabbi would turn to you and he would say these words. He would say, come, follow me. Interesting, huh? Come, follow me. And so back to our story here from the book of Mark, like some pieces come together a little bit. Uh, Verse 16, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, that's Peter, and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen, okay? So they are fishermen. What does that tell us about these boys? It, It tells us that they're doing the family business, they're doing what, what they're supposed to do, they, and it also tells us they're not disciples of anybody. They are not the best of the best in their culture. 
Okay, verse 17, come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. Jesus, who by the way is 30 years old in this spot right here, talking to late teenagers, uses rabbi language, Jewish rabbi language here, and says, come follow me. Verse 19, when he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. James and John are in a boat. They're preparing their nets. They were working. What does that tell us? They're doing their family business. You catch that? They're doing their family business. Verse 20, without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Now, I want you to attempt to understand something uh, that is completely foreign to us right here and right now, and that's just that in this Jewish culture, understand that it was a parent's dream for their child to become a rabbi. Some of us in, in, you know, the idea of like your kid being called to be a, a missionary or a priest or a pastor or something, you're like, ah, I don't know, they won't make any money, everyone's going to hate them, okay? And with all this stuff, like that doesn't sound like a good life at all, you know? And, but in this, in this Jewish culture, just understand, it was the parents' dream for their children, it, it, like it was honor, it was the best of the best, in this Jewish culture became rabbis, the brightest, the best, all of that in that way. It, it showed like a beloved and respected rabbi uh, thought that your child had what, it, had what it takes. Do you hear that language? Like it, uh, to do the most important work that there is, and that is teaching and leading people in the way of God. So why did these kids drop everything, leave their family, their friends, their lives to follow Jesus just because Jesus says, come follow me. Because Jesus is saying to like these dropouts, he's saying to them, I, like, I believe in you and I believe you can do what I do. And so there's this level of, of and, and so immediately or at once, these young men leave everything to follow this rabbi Jesus. This was an unbelievable moment and an honor for these kids in that way. Okay, so for just a few minutes before we're done, I want to just make a few observations on what we've talked about and kind of uh, apply this to us today, uh, just from these few verses where Jesus calls the first four disciples. And so write this down if you're taking notes. Okay, number one, Jesus chose unqualified, ordinary people to be his disciples. Now, this is so different. This is what makes Jesus and his story special compared to all the other rabbis of that day because the other rabbis are looking at the best of the best and they're, and they're like people are applying and they're saying, I don't think you have what it takes. And, and, and so the best of the best, Jesus does this totally different. And, and we see this as a scriptural scriptural idea all over the place, by the way, that God seemed to just use ordinary people to do supernatural things and really to do his work. The people of the Bible weren't special. They weren't the most talented. 
They, they weren't the smartest. They weren't the best of the best or whatever. Think about the very mother of Jesus. We're talking about this teenage, rural, young woman. Like nothing special about her when it comes to uh, any of that. But God like shows her favor and, and chooses her to be the very mother of Jesus. An ordinary young woman who God just takes and does incredible supernatural things through. It's, it's incredible. To, we see this over and over again. But in our story right here, like Jesus chooses these, in a way, dropouts, fishermen, uneducated, not disciples of other rabbis in the way that they would choose. And so many times we feel so inadequate when it comes to our spiritual lives and when it comes to what God maybe is asking us to do. And we think, man, certain people, God is gifted to do certain things and I'm just not that smart and I just don't know that much about this stuff. And I have a messy past where I made mistakes and did a whole bunch of things that I'm ashamed of. God could never and would never choose me. And it's just not how the Bible works and it's not how God works. Like God, God doesn't like uh, choose uh, the extraordinary people. He just looks for those who are willing and open. It's a beautiful thing. If you're in a spot right now where you're just like, I don't know enough about the Bible and I'm not that smart and I'm not good enough or whatever, like just understand you are in like the perfect position for God to use you. So come on, somebody. That was like, I like that. Okay, that's good stuff right there. Jesus chose unqualified, ordinary people. It's like he had a different way of choosing, different parameters than everybody else. Uh, uh, In fact, I love this. In the book of Acts, after Jesus is no longer here, Jesus is gone, and the disciples are now preaching and teaching the people, and they get into trouble. And uh, and this is actually Peter and John, these first two guys. But look at the way the authorities describe Peter and John in Acts chapter 4. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Do you see the words there? I love that. Like these, these are the religious leaders of the day who Peter and John are walking around preaching on the streets, and so the religious leaders have them arrested, and they bring them in front, and they're just like, wait, you? Unschooled, ordinary men, and they took note that they had been with Jesus. Listen very closely. Like We need to stop disqualifying ourselves from what God wants to do in us and through us. Don't disqualify yourself, because God can use you. God has, uh, I just love that. God chooses the most unlikely of people, all right? Uh, The apostle Paul killed Christians, killed Christians, and God used him in supernatural ways. That's his past, okay? Uh, And he would go on to write half the New Testament. Don't disqualify yourself because God doesn't. Jesus chose unqualified, ordinary people to be his closest followers. He chose them to change the world like teenage fishermen. You with me? I've hammered that enough. All right, uh, number two, just a second observation, and this will be the last one for, for today. Uh, true discipleship is about becoming like Jesus. Now, we, 
we didn't really go into this section of being a disciple of a rabbi, but let me unpack this a little bit. Uh, John Mark Comer writes this fantastic book called Practicing the Way, and on, on, like talks so much about this discipleship idea, and he says there were three steps to being a disciple in the time of Jesus, three different steps to it. The first is that you are with your rabbi, the second is that you become like your rabbi, and then the third is that eventually you begin to do what your rabbi did or what he does, okay? And so let me unpack this. First, you would just be with your rabbi. Now, we can think about this from the perspective of Jesus and his disciples, but this was a much bigger thing of rabbis and their disciples. But a disciple would leave their family, would leave their friends, would leave their little village, would leave everything that they know and everything that was comfortable and all of that, and they would spend all day, every day with their rabbi. In fact, uh, the, the study that Ray Vanderlaan like, did, does about this, he calls it in the dust of your rabbi because there was this Hebrew saying that is just straight translated. It says, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi, which basically means may you follow him so closely that, that you are covered with the stuff he is kicking up. Like you are walking that close to him. And so just understand the disciples of Jesus, we see this now when you think about it, all day, every day, they are spending with Jesus. They're eating with him. They're, they're sleeping in the same places. They're walking from one place to, to the next. And even when Jesus would wander off sometimes early in the morning, he would like ditch all the disciples. What did they do? They immediately would be like, where is he? And they would go try to find him. Again and again, you see this, like 100% of their life for the three-year period was spent right on the heels of Jesus, everywhere he went and everything that he did and all of that, okay? They're with him all the time, and that was on purpose. It's how it worked. And all that was happening with the second part in mind, and that's the hope that in being with your rabbi 24-7, that eventually you would become like them, that you would begin to be little Jesuses, that you would begin to be little whoever your rabbi was, that you would take on their mannerisms, their teachings, all of that. You would begin to become like them. See, a disciple, it's not just about learning certain things and going to school and now I'm gonna go off and be my own person and all of that. They're like, their life was now fully modeled after that person that they were following. That was the point. And being with the rabbi and learning to become like them would eventually lead to the third part. And that was that you would begin to do what your rabbi does, do what they did. The goal is not just to become smart and not just to learn all sorts of stuff and to be liked and well-known. The goal is that at some point, these disciples would have their own disciples. Can you, can you feel that? That they would be followed and that they would teach and lead by example. And a side note, check this out. The last thing that Jesus says to his disciples, uh, as, and, and he continues to use this rabbi language, this is Matthew chapter 28. Let me read this to you. He's, he's just about ready to leave, and he says to them this. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Like he's using this, this language here of a rabbi. Make disciples of all nations 
nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Like after they walk with Jesus for three years, he turns to them and says, okay, it's your turn. Now you go make disciples. Uh, and now, all of that was then. We ain't, we ain't got no rabbis walking around, do we? And I'm not a rabbi. Don't call me a rabbi. That's weird. All right? Uh, but listen, there's so much that we can learn right here, right now, Central Minnesota people. Uh, we, we like to use the phrase in our culture, we'll, we talk about Christians and we, we sometimes will say they're followers of Jesus. Have you ever you heard that? And maybe you would say, I, like, I'm a follower of Jesus, talking about Christians. In fact, in fact, the word Christian is literally defined as little Christ's. Little Christ is what that is. Uh, or it's often just assigned as a follower, someone who's following Christ. But listen to me. Like scripturally, becoming a Christian, this is biblical here, becoming a Christian in the Bible is not just about going to heaven when you die. Like there, there's a piece of that and, and Jesus gave his life and there's eternal life and we have all of that. But, but that's just like this little tiny piece. It's the bonus of what being a Christian should be, okay? Because scripturally, it's not as much about that as it is about becoming like Jesus. That, that's the point. That's what it, a Christian is. You are a little Jesus, you're supposed to be that. And, and, and as we look at the language of, of different passages, I'll just show you a couple of Romans chapter 8.29. I don't have these on the screen, but let me just share them quickly. 8.29 says to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Talks about 1 John 2.6, to walk, that we should learn to walk as Jesus walked. 1 Peter 2.22, that you may follow in his steps. Philippians 2.5 have the same attitude as Jesus. And, and the question that I'm just left with as I look at this is, who am I becoming? Who am I becoming? Am I becoming more and more like Jesus? Or is this churchy stuff for me just about a ticket into heaven or because I'm supposed to be doing good, like this is what I'm supposed to do? Because the whole purpose of this as a church is that we as individuals and as a group would become more and more like the body of Christ. That we would be the hands and the feet of Jesus living and acting and breathing and moving and helping just as if Jesus were here today. You are supposed to be more and more like Jesus today than you were a year ago. And in a year from now, you should be more like Christ. And the question that I have is, who are you becoming? Are you right now on a trajectory to become more and more like Jesus? Or are you on a trajectory to just continue to do the churchy things over and over and over again? Who are you becoming? That is the goal that's what this is supposed to look like, more and more like Jesus. Every day, a little bit closer, every day moving in that direction. Music team, will you please come?
I want to ask you to stand with me all over this place. For me, it's fun to learn about history and to have certain passages of the Bible in a way come alive in a different way because of something cultural or something. Like, I, I love that stuff and I eat that stuff up, but understand that unless this stuff moves from just knowledge that we gain into something deep within our heart, then we're really just kind of reading a cool story. The Bible was meant to transform the way that we think. And here we're face to face with the story of Jesus who calls these disciples and these disciples give it all up. And their purpose is simply to become like Jesus. That they would follow him everywhere that he went, that they would listen to the stories and the parables, that they'd see him do miracles, they would, they would want to do what he did. I mean, think about the story of Jesus walking on water. We'll see it come up in the book of Mark. The disciples are out in this boat, and Jesus, it's at night, and Jesus shows up, and he's walking on the water. And what does Peter do? He jumps out of the boat and begins to walk on the water. Toward, why in the stink does Peter think he can walk on water? Why does he think this is a good idea? See, they just wanted to do what he did. And then Peter, all of a sudden, looks around and he sees the winds and the waves and he begins to sink and he begins to go down. And the question that I asked, I was reading that story, is like, it says that Peter doubted. But who, who is it that Peter is doubting in that moment? Is he doubting Jesus? I don't think he's doubting Jesus. I think all of a sudden, he begins to look at himself and he says, I, you know, I just stepped out and I did this and he gets eight steps in and now he's like, what am I doing? And he begins to look and he begins to say, I can't do this. And he begins to be filled with doubt about himself and he begins to sink. And Jesus walks and pulls him up and we have the rest of that story. But Jesus doesn't choose the best and the brightest. And we often disqualify ourselves and doubt ourselves and all that stuff. But God is looking for people who will just say yes to becoming more and more like him, to do as he did, to be his hands and his feet. And so God, we come to you today. And a whole lot of times, Jesus, we don't look very much like you. And we're sorry for that. God, you're not expecting perfection. You understand that's not even possible. But God, I do pray that we would become more and more like you every single day and every single moment. God, that we would pursue that. That that would be our goal. To become like you. And so Jesus, we pray that you would help us on this journey and help us with that that your very word today that has challenged us, that has encouraged us, that has moved us. I pray that this would not just be head knowledge stuff, but God, that this would truly go to our hearts. And God, that we would become more like you. 
God, I pray for that. God, I pray for someone in this place today who has maybe never responded to your message, the message of Jesus, who died for our sins to forgive us and make us right with you. And so, God, that we could start this journey with you. And I pray, God, for that person in this moment right here, God, that they would respond to you. In fact, if that's you today and you're saying, I've never responded to the message of Jesus, you can just do that. You can do that right now. You can just begin to pray and say, God, forgive me of my sins. God, I believe in you. God, change me, change my heart, change my life. God, we are grateful for what you have done for who you are. And God, even as we walk out these doors today, I pray that we would just be more aware of you, more aware of who we are becoming, that we would tell people your story, that we would follow you closer. God, teach us and move us and change us, we pray. And it's in the beautiful name of Jesus, we pray. And everybody said, amen, amen.